Good morning, everyone. Proud of you all, okay? I want to say of you all, the first service, the few, the proud, the first service on Daylight Savings. It is 7.50 to our bodies, so way to go. If you're visiting with us this morning and you don't know who I am, my name's Chad. I'm the pastor in training. It's good to be up here again. We are continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke. And as you heard, just read, we are in chapter 6, 17 through 26. And I've titled the sermon, The Blessed of the Kingdom. Join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we... We just sing your praises this morning. It is so good to be with your people again on a Sunday morning, singing your praises and remembering, Lord, that your mercies are new and fresh this morning for us, and the gospel is true still this morning, and through Jesus Christ, Lord, we say that you are our chosen portion and our cup. You hold our lot. The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance. We set you before us this morning, and because you are at our right hand, we shall not be shaken. We know that because you didn't let the Lord Jesus Christ's body see corruption or shield, you will not let our spiritual lives see corruption, and someday you will raise our bodies. And we declare this morning, now by faith and someday by sight, that in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We praise you and love you and pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to start with some song lyrics. We're really going to see how hip some of you are this morning. It's going to be hard for me not to start singing them, and there's a chance that I might, so forgive me. It starts like this. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say. Sunshine, she's here. You can take a break. I'm a hot air balloon that could go to space with the air like I don't care, baby, by the way. Huh. Because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Because I'm happy, clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Because I'm happy, clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. Does anyone know the song? Thank you, thank you. Hey, that's why I preach and I'm not on the worship team. Chase has told me many times, stick to preaching, not singing. He has said that to me, Chase. Anyone? Chase, you know the song? Pharrell Williams, happy. I hope you've all heard it. Maybe you haven't. That's okay. You're not really missing out that much on life. Trust me. But I asked Pharrell Pharrell Williams this morning, what is happiness? What is it to you, Windsor Community Church? Do you want to be happy? I would argue that God has made every human being with a desire to want to be happy. Or to use the biblical word, blessed. Do you want to be blessed? What is the blessed life? And where do we find it? I've shared my story from this pulpit before, so I won't share it again. But suffice it to say that before following Jesus, I thought the blessed life would be found in athletic success. 
my beatitude would have been, blessed are the successful athletes, for they are well-liked and rich. What was or is your beatitude? Or the beatitudes that the culture tells us? Maybe it's something like this. Blessed are the financially rich, for they will never live in insecurity. Blessed are those with many friends and a tight-knit family, for they will never be lonely. Blessed are those who are secluded and alone, for they will never be hurt. Blessed are those who say the right things and check the right boxes, yet put up walls, for they will never be found out. Blessed are those who never need to ask for help, for they will never be seen as weak. You all can probably think of more. But none of those truly places someone in a blessed life. Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, who has all authority and power and rules the universe, tells us in these beatitudes and woes that the blessed life is found in embracing the mindset of the kingdom of God. Suffer now, satisfaction later. The blessed life is found in embracing the mindset of the kingdom of God. Suffer now, satisfaction later. So some context before we dive into our text this morning. Briefly, Jesus has been healing many people we've read about in the first six chapters. He's been speaking authoritatively on the kingdom of God. He's called his disciples. And last week, we saw that there was starting to be a division about who Jesus is, especially among the Pharisees and the religious elite. We're going to continue to see that division throughout the Gospel of Luke. And that's what Jesus is going to address this morning in the Beatitudes. There's a division. There are those who are blessed, and there are those who are, I would say, cursed, that woes are coming to. So the big structure of the text and the sermon this morning is, is two ideas, two points. First, we're going to see the setting of the sermon there in 17 through 19. And then we're going to see the sermon itself in verses 20 through 26. Under the second point, when we consider the sermon, there'll be four subpoints that I'll tell you about when we get there. But first, just so you can follow me easily, <clears throat> we'll look at the setting of the sermon, verses 17 through 19. I'm not going to reread these verses. You can look along with me. Here we see the setting. Jesus is with his disciples, whom he's just named apostles in the previous passage from last week. A great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude from all over. It says Judea, Jerusalem, and the coastal towns of Tyre and Sidon. People from Tyre and Sidon probably means that this crowd included Gentiles as well, because those were Gentile towns. And all these people came to see Jesus for two reasons. To hear him, the text says, and to be healed of their diseases. But there's a bonus. It says even those with unclean spirits were cured. That reminds us that Jesus isn't only about physical healing, but spiritual healing as well. And he, is, he came to earth to enter into this spiritual battle for the souls of men. Jesus was becoming extremely famous. And this early on in his ministry, it's probably because he was healing so many people. So like it happens with famous people, it seems that there was a frenzy to get to Jesus. Can you picture it? This, this great multitude, they're all trying to get to him. Don't forget, just recently in the Gospel of Luke, some guys tore a roof off a house to get to Jesus. 
And now in this scene, it seems more than just a few people are trying to get to him and touch him. Look at verse 19. It says, all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. Healed them all. That's amazing. There are times in Jesus' ministry when he chooses not to heal everyone, or he chooses only to heal one person out of the whole multitude. But here we see he's healing them all. It makes you wonder if the frenzied crowd is becoming dangerous and that they might want to trample Jesus or the disciples to get to him, that they may be healed. But they didn't come only for healing. It says that they came to hear him as well. And good thing, because they need to hear him. They need to hear that they shouldn't just come to Jesus for healing, but so that they can experience the blessings of the kingdom, which is what he's about to preach about. So he starts preaching, and it makes you wonder if the crowd gets totally silent when he starts talking. He, he speaks with such authority, he starts talking, and you can hear a pin drop. And that moves us on to the sermon when he starts preaching, verses 20 through 26. First, what's important to note is who his sermon is directed at. Look at verse 20, the beginning, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, there's no reason to assume the setting has changed. Jesus is still surrounded by a large crowd. So his sermon is accessible to this crowd, but directed at his disciples. And then he describes four beatitudes and four woes, each of which are correlated. For each beatitude, there's a flip side woe. Before we dive into those, though, let's get some definitions. What is a beatitude? It's from a Latin word and means a condition or statement of blessedness or even supreme blessedness. Being blessed refers to an inner sense of happiness at good fortune. In an Old Testament Jewish religious context, it's the idea of, of joy at experiencing fortune from God's hand. We see this a lot in the Psalms. One author defines beatitude this way. A statement declaring someone is on the true way of being that will result in happiness and human flourishing. This is so important because some of us may be prone to read these beatitudes without a Christ-centered lens and therefore read them as moral commands or as law. Be poor and God will bless you. Be hungry, and God will bless you. Cry, and God will bless you. No, that's not the way to read these. Belief in Christ is how a person is blessed by God. And being Jesus' disciple puts one on the path to true happiness and flourishing. So these beatitudes are circumstances or situations we may find ourselves in, and when we do, we can remember that despite the difficulty, we are blessed because we are already a part of the kingdom of God through our belief in Christ. So we can joyfully acknowledge and even, I would say, pursue being poor, poor in spirit, hungry for food, hungry for God, weeping about the sin and suffering of this world and persecuted because those are how we walk in the ways of the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, those who are already following him. Now, we can't know for certain that they were all born again. And in fact, we know that Judas Iscariot wasn't. 
But still, the context of the sermon presupposes those who are already following Jesus. So the blessing of God comes to those who follow Jesus and acknowledge their physical, spiritual state that can be endured and even cause flourishing because of what is true already of them or because of what is promised to them in the coming kingdom of God in the final day. So that's Beatitudes. Let's consider the woes briefly. Let's have a definition. The word woe is an exclamation of pain and pity for the misfortune that awaits someone in a certain condition. There are many examples of woes throughout the Old Testament and are often side by side with blessing, as we see here in Jesus' sermon. So we could rightly understand the woes as pronouncements of coming judgment, unless there's divine intervention. And again, there's no reason to assume Jesus is talking to another group as he pronounces the woes. He's speaking to the disciples in the hearing of the crowd. So the point of the woes would be something like, don't live as those on the outside of the kingdom live. Your values are not to be the same as their values. Your understanding of what it means to be blessed by God should not be the same as theirs. A main point of these woes, according to one author, is the woes are an attitude of independence from God is the road to destruction. So the purpose of, of this section of Jesus' sermon, and what I mean by this section, I mean verses 20 through 26, because this is going to be a longer sermon than just I preach on this morning. The purpose of this section of his sermon is an invitation and a warning. Jesus is calling his disciples to recognize their blessedness as kingdom citizens, despite the trials and suffering of their present lives, and he's calling them to trust in his care and rest in his promises. And he's warning them not to live like those on the outside live. And even though his words, again, are directed at the disciples, the multitude can hear him, and his words serve as an invitation and a warning to them as well. But there's also another audience, us, right here, right now. There's an invitation and a warning to us as his followers and those of you who are here with us this morning that don't follow Jesus. So that's enough of an overview of Beatitudes and woes. So now how we'll walk through this text together, how I'll preach it, we'll consider each Beatitude and its corresponding woe together. So there's four Beatitudes, there's four woes. For example, we'll look at Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then the flip side, woe, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Because Jesus mentions the kingdom often and his teaching is about the blessing and woes of the kingdom, I've titled the four beatitudes and correlated woes as such. Number one, we're going to look at kingdom riches. Number two, kingdom satisfaction. Number three, kingdom laughter. And number four, kingdom acceptance. Verse references for you there. So first, let's look at kingdom riches. We'll start with the beatitude, the second half of verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The first beatitude and woe have to do with riches or lack thereof physical and spiritual. We are reminded of how upside down Jesus' teaching is. You're blessed if you're poor? 
that doesn't line up with some ancient Near Eastern theology or even some of our modern theology. If God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives, shouldn't we all be rich? Which begs the question, is Luke's only intention as he records Jesus' sermon to consider material wealth? Or does he have a double meaning in mind, materially poor and spiritually poor? Yes, many of Jesus' disciples were and are materially poor. But recognizing financial lack doesn't make one fit to inherit the kingdom of God. That takes spiritual recognition. So I would argue Luke and Jesus have both in mind. Remember in Luke 4, when Jesus reads Isaiah 61, I'll remind you what that says. Verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That passage clearly has spiritual reality in mind. Freedom from sins, salvation, spiritual salvation. Often, though, throughout the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, those who are materially poor, often recognize how spiritually poor they are, which causes them to look to and depend on God. One author said this, the poor in Judaism referred to those in desperate need, their socioeconomic element, whose helplessness drove them to a dependent relationship with God, a spiritual element, for the supplying of their needs and vindication. So how are the poor blessed? Each beatitude has a connecting word, for, of which a synonym could be because. Blessed are the materially and spiritually poor because yours is the kingdom of God. It belongs to you now, truly, and someday fully, Often we use a term here at Windsor Community Church that we didn't coin, theologians have coined it, that we live in the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. It's already here, but it's not yet fully here. It's coming even more fully someday. On the flip side of the beatitude is the woe. Look at verse 24, yeah, verse 24 with me. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Again, the idea here isn't merely material riches. Though the Bible does teach that material wealth can be a hindrance to entering the kingdom of God, there are many exceptions. Pretty much all of us in here are an exception because we live in America. We have houses and cars and bank accounts. What is condemned here is a rich attitude toward God and toward neighbor. A prideful lack in trust in God, a pursuit of possessions without concern for God or for neighbor. And for those people, they have received their consolation. What's fascinating is the idea that you have received conveys in the Greek. I got to get some water. It's right over here. Sorry.
It's a technical commercial term for signing or accepting a receipt for a payment given. And not just a partial payment, but a payment that has been paid in full. Those who are rich in wealth and pride have been paid in full. There will be no reward for them in God's kingdom. Their riches are their receipt. And they have no further payment to look forward to. But Christians, brothers and sisters in here, you are rich. Because to you belongs the kingdom of God. You may be poor financially, but by God's grace, every Christian in here has recognized that they are poor spiritually, and we have cast ourselves onto the grace of God. Let's look at the next pairing I've called kingdom satisfaction, First, uh, the first half of verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied This beatitude, hunger, and the next one, weeping, could both be related to the first, being poor. And again, I don't believe Luke is excluding a spiritual element. Yes, those who are literally hungry for food will feast in heaven. But also, and more importantly, those who hunger for God will be satisfied. One author says this, the hungry are men who both outwardly and inwardly are painfully deficient in the things essential to life as God meant it to be, and who, since they cannot help themselves, turn to God on the basis of his promise. These men and these alone find God's help in Jesus. They are not an existing social or religious group. They are believers who seek help from Jesus because of their own helplessness. Have you ever wondered that if God created us in such a way that we need to eat and we experience hunger, that it is to remind us of our need for him and that our greatest hunger should be for him? Have you thought about that? I haven't much until prepping this week. Man, I'm hungry every day. What if that's a reminder of what I'm supposed to be hungry for? What if the purpose of fasting is to allow our hunger pangs to remind us of what we really hungry, are hungry for? Every time our stomach growls and says, feed me, we're reminded, I want you, God, more than I want that food. I think that's the purpose of fasting. We have this 24 hours of prayer and fasting coming up. I would encourage you guys to think about fasting, not just for an hour, lovingly, maybe the whole 24 hours. I'll do it with you. We can have a powwow after this and say, hey, I'll, like, we'll keep each other accountable. 24 hours, 24 hours. Deal? Let's try it. So what about the flip side, the woe? The first half of verse 25. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Those who are full now, full of the good life, the life where hunger is satisfied by everything but God will, in the end, be hungry. Christians, remember, you are one who has turned to God through Christ. One who has recognized that only he will satisfy your deepest longings. You've recognized your lack and you depend on God and God will satisfy you. But maybe this morning you need to be called back to that. Maybe you've been hungering for other things 
more than you hunger for God. Like, God, I'm pretty satisfied in you, but I'd be happier if I had you fill in the blank. Again, not to share our story again, but living with your parents for eight years at my age, that's a daily struggle. God, we're satisfied in you, but we'd just be happier if we had our own house. And how often this was our lesson for eight years to just, God, I just want to hunger for you. I want to be satisfied in you. And if you choose to give us a good gift, praise your name. And if he never chose to give us a good gift, praise his name. We're all growing there. Maybe we can just acknowledge afresh this morning that only God can satisfy our hearts. He's what we hunger for. Let's look at the third pairing, kingdom laughter. Second half of verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. The idea of weeping here and throughout the Bible is broad. God's people mourn for a variety of reasons. But it seems primarily for the suffering and death and injustice in a world where God's people are pressured, persecuted, and exiled, just like the Old Testament prophets were. Life causes much weeping, doesn't it? Maybe you're not all as emotional as I am, but I know it does for me. And it causes weeping not just because of our own circumstances, but because of tough circumstances of the people that we love. And that may cause us to want to insulate ourselves, to want to pull away from community because there's too much pain. We can barely handle our own. I don't want to push into community and have to bear other people's burdens and weep with them. But that is not the right response, brothers and sisters. Because that wasn't Jesus' response. He didn't insulate himself from the suffering of the world. He came and he wept with humanity. And not just with those he loved, like Lazarus and Mary and Martha, but for those who hated him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. So like him, we should push into the pain of life and the pain of those around us and not be like those who boastfully laugh now. Look at the second half of verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. This is laughter that is boastful, self-satisfied, condescending, and rejoicing in the harm that others experience. That kind of laughter is not love. It is the insulated laughter of one who has used people to get ahead, and it is not obedient to the second part of the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And that kind of laughter ends in mourning and weeping. On the final day of judgment... When God ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, there will only be mourning and weeping for those who used to laugh like this. So, brothers and sisters, it's good to weep now. 
to be sorrowful about the pain and suffering that you, those you love, and the world experiences. Because someday you shall laugh. We all shall laugh. Let's consider the final pairing, kingdom acceptance. First, verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. This final beatitude and corresponding woe put the nail in the coffin that these beatitudes are not just taken to be physical and or socioeconomic. They're ultimately spiritual in nature. Here we see acceptance and opposition, spurning and speaking well. Yes, people hated Jesus. They reviled him. They spurned his name as evil, and he promises they will do the same to his followers. But what's the reason? Do they hate us in response to our apparent hatred of them, which I think often is the case? Let's hope not, you guys, because we shouldn't hate them. Next week, we're going to read the passage, and I'll preach on love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. The only reason the world should hate us is because of our association with Jesus Christ. He says, the son of man. I wanted to preach a mini sermon right there. Son of man. He's not just referring to his humanity, actually. He's referring to his divinity. Read Daniel chapter 7 this afternoon. He is the divine son of God who's coming on the clouds to judge the living and the dead. That's what he means when he says son of man. Our association with him, of course, dictates our worldview, our morality. So there will be those of us, all of us Christians, who are hated for our biblical morality and our ethics. But wouldn't we feel better... I would feel better if the primary reason people hated me or hated us was because we shared the gospel with them. Let them hate us because we offered them the way of salvation and they rejected it, not because our moral snobbery initiated their gag reflex. Some of you are going to want to get coffee after that and be like, whoa, but we're supposed to be moral. We are supposed to be moral people. But maybe we don't always lead with, your morals are awful, mine are great. Straighten up and fly right. Come over. Have a meal. I can graciously and lovingly tell you why I land where I land with my morality, but let me tell you about Jesus Christ and the way of salvation. I haven't read it yet, but we all need to read Rosaria Butterfield's autobiography, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, right? She was an active homosexual teaching at Syracuse, and a pastor said, I just want to get to know you. Can you come to my house and we'll have dinner a few times? And over months, he just loved her and shared the gospel with her, and she believed. She left her life of sin, and now she's married to a pastor and writes amazing books. So when all this hatred spurning, reviling, excluding happens, Jesus gives his only command in the sermon. 
at least in this passage of the sermon. He says, rejoice, leap for joy in that day when you're persecuted on account of the Son of Man because your reward is great in heaven. It's an amazing thought. And don't forget, that's how the Old Testament prophets were treated as well. You are in a long line of the people who, of God who have been treated that way. So let's look at the flip side, the woe. Verse 26, woe to you and all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Those who are spoken well of aren't really living under the authority of God. As the false prophets of the Old Testament were ear ticklers, they told people what they wanted to hear and not in love what they needed to hear or what God was saying. This is a warning for the disciples and us not to seek acceptance at the expense of truthfulness. So if all people speak well of you, woes are coming. Christians, brothers and sisters, we we can be accepted in the kingdom and rejected by many in the world, or we can be accepted by much of the world and rejected in the kingdom. And remember that we have been accepted by the king. And therefore, we are blessed as we experience persecution by the world. And many, as I said, have gone before us. As Ryan called us to worship this morning. That's amazing. God had us on the same page. We didn't talk. We're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. So let's zoom out again and let me reiterate the point. Everyone who heard this sermon from Jesus and everyone who hears it now is in one of two camps, the blessed of the kingdom or the cursed. The initial experience of the blessing of God comes with repentance of sins and following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Friend, if you're here with us this morning and you don't follow Jesus Christ, I offer him to you. If you want to live the blessed life, that is the first way into it, is acknowledge your sin, that there's a holy God who created the world in love and our sin separates him. But Jesus Christ paid for our sins. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose again. He ascended and he invites people to the kingdom. There's still time. And it's amazing because the blessings don't stop there. For those in the kingdom, imperfectly seeking to walk in God's ways, blessings continue to come despite our difficult circumstances and even through our difficult circumstances. Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus Christ this morning. He embodied all of these beatitudes. He was poor, he experienced hunger, he wept, and he was hated and killed. And he inaugurated this great reversal, this upside-down kingdom where his people can be blessed as they walk the same path he did. And someday, on the final day, he will reverse it all. Those in the kingdom, like our king, are blessed and joyful as we embrace the cross-now, crown-later mindset. Life is hard. And there's a cost to being a part of the kingdom of God. 
but we don't insulate ourselves. We don't self-preserve because King Jesus didn't. And we are blessed as we intentionally, though imperfectly, walk in his footsteps. We recognize that we are blessed amidst our physical and spiritual suffering because ultimately we belong to the king and the king belongs to us. And someday when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, all sorrow and suffering will be no more. We will fully experience the riches, the satisfaction, the laughter, and acceptance in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. We praise you this morning, Lord. I praise you for placing us, your people at Windsor Community Church, in a blessed state because of what you've done for us in Christ. And that as we seek to live a cruciform life, you continue to bless us amidst our spiritual and material poverty, our hunger, chiefly, hopefully for you, our weeping and our persecution. We are blessed, Lord. And I pray that you continue to give us boldness to walk in the ways of Christ, empowered by his spirit, to, to bring this gospel to those we live, work, learn, and play with. And Lord, for any in our midst this morning that don't follow you, that feel like maybe they are part of the group, that woes are coming, I pray, Lord, that you'd open their eyes, that they'd see you and see their own sin and, and join us in the, the blessed life of painfully yet joyfully uh, walking until you come. We love you, Lord, and praise you and pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our King and Savior and Lord and treasure. Amen.